The initial vision for the Mocha Live podcast was that it would remain pretty art-focused, centralizing the aesthetics that I desperately wanted to keep centralized in a space that all too often becomes obsessed with the trappings of fame, influence, and money. That we began to release these podcasts in January of 2023, about a year ago, and just about a month before ChatGPT's unleashing on the world changed our collective perception of AI permanently, that seems in hindsight to be a kind of cruel irony. We can't really talk about aesthetics ever on this podcast because before our very eyes, AI is reshaping our understanding of aesthetics themselves. As I record this cold open, an artist named Lila Jane is experiencing the brunt of scandal, having minted a supposed oil painting that many people are claiming is actually an AI generation. The questions that come from this are many, even if the public response has been brutal and bullying. Do artists have a responsibility to disclose AI usage? That's most important. But also, aesthetics in this case do not seem to matter at all. The picture is before us, the image itself is there, but we've all already moved past that. And the context and the process, that's what we find ourselves arguing over today. The aesthetics are besides the point. Except they're never really besides the point. Last time we had Linda Dunia on the podcast, we spoke at length about bias and AI, meaning more or less how the bias of an AI's use and development would manifest in the aesthetic outputs and what that means for a world struggling to keep corporate, unnuanced Apple store culture at bay. We're going to talk about that again today on the pod with Linda Dunia joining us once again. AI is all-consuming in my own understanding of crypto art, and there's no better person perhaps anywhere to discuss this with than Linda. Not just because of the fascinating and singular AI tactics she devises and uses in her own work, though you will definitely want to stick around until the end of this pod to hear Linda talk about speculative archiving, but because her deep wealth of knowledge and her sympathetic, nuanced approach to these conversations is immediately on display. We will cross a lot of borders on this podcast, and we talk about AI bias and the homogenizing effect that has on culture. We talk about the difficulties of subverting that bias and the dangers of failing to do so. We talk about centering humanity within AI development and, yes, the piece de resistance, Linda's speculative archiving, a project so profoundly interesting it has already begun to reshape my very understanding of reality. And I mean that in no uncertain terms. You're going to love this podcast. And so let's get to it. Linda Dunia joins Colborn and I on this week's Mocha Live podcast. Please enjoy. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Mocha Live podcast. My name is Max Cohen. I'm here in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. I'll be your host or one of your hosts today. It is 5 o'clock p.m. on the dot as we start this. I would like to introduce everyone to my wonderful co-host, as always, the founder of the Museum of Crypto Art. That would be Colborn Bell. Colborn, how are you? I'm well. Thank you, Max. That's wonderful to hear. And I would also like to introduce you to our only second ever repeat guest. She was last back on in June, uh, releasing her show with Feral File in Slash Visible. Um, and we talked all about bias and AI. Since then, she's been named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in AI. That's pretty cool. Uh, never a doubt, it's the incomparable artist, curator, uh, Linda Dunya. Linda, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the warm intro. Happy to be here. I, I feel like since you've been on, I've really gotten more involved with my intros. I used to just kind of like let it rip. But it's like immediately <laughs> now I want to give this whole like, <laughs> you deserve it. So let's jump right in. I obviously have some specific topics that I want to get to, of course, but I'm curious in your opinion, and since you've last been on the show about six months ago, you know, what has most surprised you about the way AI culture or tech has grown in the last like six months or so, or how it's been developed, how it's disseminated into the public, like just what's getting your attention um, at the moment? Um, I guess I was, and maybe this is because I was scarred from just being in the blockchain for and, and not having anybody around me involved with it, but I felt there was going to be a bit more resistance than what actually ended up happening. It's, it's almost feels like everybody's embraced it completely. Like my mom asked me about chat GPT. She, she's worked <laughs> in the same company for like, ever since she started working, she works in insurance. I don't think, I mean, maybe chat GPT would be helpful, but it's just to hear that um, a lot of people are kind of approaching these tools with curiosity more than, I guess, feeling threatened, I think was what I hoped for. But um, it turned out to be like way more positive than I thought. And I recently became obsessed with like sort of the, the areas that AI is 
kind of very present in, but people don't necessarily know it yet. Uh, or, or it's, I mean, the information is out. They just, I guess, haven't found out yet, but astrology is one of them. Like, Interesting. It, there's been this like resurgence of astrology after, after the pandemic. And um, a lot of these, I mean, at least one of these companies, like I think it's called CoStar, has been working with OpenAI for a while. <laughs> so a lot of, so their answers are, you know, chat GPT generated. I mean, they say they use data from NASA for at least like positioning, like figuring out the birth chart or whatever it's called. But um, a lot of their answers are currently being crafted by good old chat GPT. So I thought it was interesting and, and, and wondering how people might react to that if they knew their horoscope was coming from AI. Um, that's fascinating. This is the first time I've heard about CoStar. It's never been mentioned to me outside of one of my friends trying to enlist me onto the app um, with my like very powerful resistance. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's really interesting. Have you spoken to others about like the fact that these technologies have merged, or the fact because this feels like, especially because horoscopes, to my knowledge, were so. Um, sequestered in like newspaper columns for a very, yeah. very long time. It seems like this perfect kind of environment for a chat GPT-esque AI to come in and kind of write blurbs that are very pretty sounding and based in what seems to me yeah. to be very complex information. Every time I hear more about astrology, there's more things rising and falling and <laughs> more houses. More planets. <laughs> yeah, more planets, exactly. <laughs> you know, I so, I mean, I feel like... AI was in our lives <clears throat> a lot, like a lot longer than we know or that we are aware of in the sense that, um, you know, a lot of the algorithms that just kind of create our experiences on social media, on astrology apps, apparently on shopping apps, a lot of that was AI for, has been AI for a long time. I think it's the fact that we could create images or conjure up like texts and poems using AI that, with that direct interface that sort of was the novelty. Um, but I'm really hoping people become more curious about what else is, you know, AI generated in their lives and how they feel about that. Because um, ultimately, I think we should have the choice, at least like at a personal level, to be able to like make a decision on what we want to be assisted with and what we don't want to be assisted with. But yeah, I think I think the astrology thing was surprising to me, but then I found a you know I've just been like in a rabbit hole reading different articles about it, and it's a perfect like, it's a perfect testing bed for like a you know a language model like, mm -hmm. you know you have these predetermined rules about placements um, to determine the birth chart, and then you have these affinities based on the placement, um, which are just all very you know. Pro, it's very programmatic language in a way. And then you just have to add a layer of, of poetry on top to, you know, massage the language a little bit, make it more appealing, make it more um, interesting to read on a daily basis, which just like for me, like that's one of the best use cases of an LLM. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, like it was a early testing ground for, for them. I want to go back to one thing you just said about, uh, people should have the choice between, or I guess the choice of when they are using this technology and not. Coborn, do you think that we will have that choice between when we use AI and when we don't? Or do you think it will just kind of be swarmed upon us? Look, we can't even figure out cookies, you know? So if <laughs> if uh, th these cookies are placed in our, in our history, they're tracking us, uh, you know, and only recently has Europe begun to kind of get wise to what all of this implies and entails. So no, you know, it's going to, there's not going to be permission asking. There's just going to be taking from us. And, and then maybe later, you know, we'll try and contain it. But by then it'll already be so far gone that. Linda, you were nodding. Like, I, I mean, I agree. Like, it's, you know, my, I guess my defining trait is hope. <laughs> I have a lot of hope. I mean, I feel like regulation is always playing catch up. And by the time it comes in, it's just so widespread. But I like the example of like the USB-C, like what happened with Apple and the USB-C. They were forced to just make everything USB-C because Europe was like, we're not going to make our people buy like three, four cables just to use your products. So I think at some point you can have, I don't know, you can have a little faith in, in regulation, re regulation, but I mean, it will be, it's so just, I don't know, it's, 
it's like trying to catch uh, water with a hand. Like it would be uh, very late. <laughs> it's already too late, I think. So I was um, I was reading the blurb about you in Time's AI 100 list, and one thing that caught my attention, and which I think is a really good place to turn this conversation, is this anecdote where you had typed buildings in Dakar, uh, where you live in Senegal, um, into, I believe it was Dali um, or Mid Journey, and you were getting back, and this is a quote, squat, decrepit low rises covered in dirt and peeling paint. Um, and how different that is from the beautiful, vibrant, you know, Senegalese world that you see around you. Um, and this is really interesting to me. Last week, um, Colborn and I were talking with our guests about um, just the homogenization of a lot of these AI models and what that has done to the aesthetics kind of across the board and how you're kind of able to recognize that. Um, and if you take that a step further, you know, it's like you take a dolly or a mid journey. And when you see so much work that is being thrown into the world and it is very homogenous and it is kind of very, it lacks the nuance of human experience and it lacks, you know, specific detail. That's very inhuman to me. Yeah. So as I was writing this question, I was thinking about this book that Stephen King wrote on writing where he says, you know, one of his bits of advice is don't just tell someone that, you know, somebody took a train, right? Say what train they took train five, six, three out of Trenton, leaving it, you know, five Oh nine PM, you know, bring everything to life with this really like grainy detail. And these mass market AIs might put out really beautiful products, but they lack the texture of real life. You said about Dali specifically, with Dali, it seems impossible to get around the bias and the issues. And you know, we spoke at length the last time you were on about stereotypes and prejudices um, of AI, which are essentially like beliefs rooted in lack of nuance and, and personal experience. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what these kinds of like mass market AI products are lacking and then how that might be affecting a public perception of AI. There is this like scenario where AI is learning from AI outputs. So I, kind of that's the logical conclusion of like what's happening at the moment. A lot of it's creating images at, at a rate that humans can't, right? So at some point, a lot of the training data will be images that are produced by AI. And there's, um, it's kind of a doomsday scenario because the model is just kind of, you know, it's like a serpent eating its own tail. It's going to become nonsensical. And I think what happens with the averaging effect is that you lose that texture, you lose that nuance, you lose that lived experience. Um, and you kind of have more and more of those images that then are supposed to inform what the future of image making looks like. And then you run into this kind of, it just gets worse and worse, like exponentially from there. Um, so I think what they lack is data. And the, and the it, I mean, they've created this problem in the sense that they've centralized data gathering, like they do it themselves, right? They might work with a few companies here and there to collect some, some data, but usually it's a very centralized process. And what happens is that we're, you know, 7 billion people on earth, lots of places, lots of languages, lots of places we haven't even discovered. And um, it's impossible to centralize the idea of, you know, getting as much nuance and richness and diversity and texture that, it, that currently exists in the world. If you centralize that, it's just not going to happen. Or you need like a lot of money, <laughs> um, probably an infinite amount of money to do that. So I think for me, the problem is in how they get the data which is always going to be very spotty, very lossy. And the model is trained on that. And it's going to reflect that lossiness. Um, but if you were to think of data collection for AI operating like, I don't know, like a mycelia, where there's multiple people just interested in bringing their lived experience and their context into these tools, that have the capability of gathering that data and training a model or contributing to the training of a larger model. And, it, and if these types of initiative mushroom all around the world, you're starting to fill the gaps a little bit. There's no financial incentive at the moment to do that. <laughs> if, if you're curious about it, you might do it, but there's absolutely no financial incentive for a person to do it. And there's no financial incentive for a company to decentralize the way they collect information, because that would also mean that their database is transparent, which I assume they don't like because it's currently not transparent. <laughs> so 
Yeah, that's interesting. It, it calls to mind something that I think about very often, which is like this Apple store conundrum where like the design is meant to be offensive to nobody and appealing to all by taking away all individualized texture. Um, and I think we see this, it's obviously not just in AI, it's in the corporate world at large, um, everything mass market, be it like Marvel movies um, that are so you know detextured from human experience that they're like formulaic and I don't know, they're like almost uncanny valley um, in how people talk to each other and how these stories kind of come together. Um, corporate advertising, corporate activities in general, it all rubs away the human element, right? Which is individual perspective, individual um, experience and like super specific cultural nuance. So I'm really interested in this idea of like preserving the humanness in AI models, um, which are, like you said, they're gonna be trained on themselves and they're going to be filling in more and more blanks visually, informationally, et cetera. Um, Colborn, I'm wondering from your perspective, and I think you, I think I probably already know your answer on this, but do you think people at large are already getting fed up with this like obviously inhuman, stilted, kind of unrecognizable world of AI outputs? Or is it just these like niche communities of artists or developers who are kind of recognizing this as a problem? What an interesting question. I think there is, I think it speaks to a larger thing of uh, there is a kind of internet reflexive idea that we have of the world in that we generally see things now or we experience them online before we experience them in reality. So you have an expectation of what something should be, which can then either be different or the same. But, you know, generally, if you are hopping between the major metropolises of the globe, then everything now is trending towards the same. And I think this is kind of the same idea, perhaps with data input or expectations of output for the data that is inputted machines training on machines you know we're almost doing this to ourselves in the way that we experience the world and that we experience it online first and then we have an expectation and then we also take that and imprint it somewhere so this kind of goes back to you know the idea that we are sanitizing and creating monoculture um through these these feedback loops that well they create themselves and then they eat themselves and they like get gorged on themselves and then not to use an incredibly evocative metaphor but then they defecate the same version of themselves that they you know took in and it's just this continuous cycle of you're eating and then excreting the same material and it's just getting more and more diluted over and over again um you know i was shocked that every starbucks and Apple store that I saw or went into in Japan looked exactly like every Starbucks and Apple store I went into in New York city. That is not how that should look. Yeah. I mean, but we're obsessed with like homogeneity. I guess I think like we want to converge towards like one idea of like a way of life and a way of doing things. Like it's literally the development project. And before that it was colonialism and like, there's just been so many, like so much evidence that we, we want one way of understanding the world and governing it. And we've done everything in our power to make sure that that way is like spread and continues to spread. It, you know, it was, it's, a, it's always been a very violent project. Now less so because we have technology to help us do that. Um, but I think we, we, I don't know, it's like maybe there's something primal about us wanting to belong. And if things don't look and act like the way we expect them to, and, and you know, if there's diversity, it threatens that idea of belonging. I don't know. Um, but it's definitely something that's always existed. And I think with AI, it's just sort of, it's happening very, very fast. Um, and we're, we don't seem to be interested in plugging the holes like we recognize there's a lack of diversity and when you when you mention it, it's kind of like an old like oh we've heard this before like people are working on it we're like adding guardrails etc cetera, etc cetera. nobody's addressing the fact that the underlying data is missing it's just like patchy um very bad <laughs> underlying information like basically the river under this big project is a very patchy very lossy 
um, data set, which extends to our understanding of the world. And then it's also just, I mean, it's, it's, there's capitalism at play, there's like globalization at play. It's easier when things function the same because it's easier to predict, it's easier to put numbers on them, it's easier to know what we're going to make in the future in terms of money. <laughs> so I think it's, um, yeah, it's like, it's it's funny because we're seeing an extension of something that's always happened, but now we don't necessarily need to go to war to make it happen. Um, just have to put a phone in someone's hand and, you know, nudge them to put in a few prompts and use that image for something. So I'm, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, because my next kind of question is like, how because i think within our niche crypto art at all community we are already fed up with the homogeneity um just because we see it so rampantly everywhere right this homogenous aesthetic the this westernized but like this textureless westernized aesthetic like we're i think we're all kind of fed up and that's why we're talking about it the three of us today um you know how as these like artists and thinkers can we centralize like on a, on a real practical level, like our own nitty gritty specific human experiences or perspectives when we use AI, like what is the actual method by which we poke and prod these things, which I think we have a responsibility in some sense to do. Yeah, no, I think there's a way to escape the aesthetic of AI. I feel like, uh, at least in my work, I've been looking at it for a while, so I kind of can't spot it and try to, sometimes I play on it, when, when I'm trying to make a point and, and most times I'm trying to escape it by adding more texture, more context. But I think the best way to do this is to just, just like train your own model. It used to be so easy. So it just, it's always been very hard until like there was this magical app that came online that was called Runway that allowed you to train your own GAN um, with a couple thousand images with pretty decent results. And it would handle all the like computing power so your computer wouldn't have to crash and you wouldn't have to pay like exorbitant amount of money to like get a rig set up and stuff and then they sunset that product it is now basically a supercharged like valley mid journey you can create videos you can you can create images you can do a whole lot of editing it's great for designers i think if you're on a project and on a deadline and you want to just quickly put out you know like some assets it's like a fantastic tool to do that and it's sunset the model, um, the model training capabilities. And they have their own sort of version of like, you can train a smaller model, but not remotely with the same level of control. Because you, you were able to actually train the model with Runway and then export your file and then like, you know, mess around with it in Google Colab if you wanted to. Um, and that, I think that, and with, with, with just no code, you didn't have to know code to do it. And I think that, I'm, I was really in, interested in why they, they sunset this product. There was not a whole lot of communication. And I think, um, I don't want to be pessimistic about this, but I think the idea that many people could train their own models actually defeats the purpose of like what these generative AI tools want to do, which is to monetize generation, right? Like basically be the sole uh, place where you can create new images based on what they have. Versus if you're able to do it yourself, you might not need to pay for a subscription. So, uh, yeah, if, essentially, if I said this six months ago, go and train your own model, uh, that would have been the answer. But now you might need to, like, do the ML course on Google yeah. <laughs> and learn how to use Google Colab to do it, which is is a very high barrier to entry. But it is possible. And maybe it's like you know, friends get together and one of them is a, you know, developer and has interest in like learning a bit of AI and ML and, you know, can get up to speed quickly with a little bit of Python on, on Google Colab and you want to do it. Maybe it happens that way, but that's the way you escape a lot of the, the lack of nuance and texture. You have to go through the process of creating a database, knowing what it takes to create a database understanding the kinds of biases that are implicit as well as explicit, the ones you decide are your biases and the ones you didn't realize until you see the end product. You're like, whoa, there's a lot of this thing in here. I didn't even notice, right? I think going through that experience, first of all, you understand how the larger models sort of work, at least from a conceptual standpoint. 
and then you can make a more I don't know you just have a bit more agency in how you use them and yeah and then you can create your own images with that which I think like that's where the diversity comes in like that's where the texture comes in if people are creating different images that means they're using their perspectives their unique perspectives to build the database which means whatever the output is is going to reflect that unique perspective well this is my fear right is that it just it, it can't not spiral back towards you know wealthy western individuals and nations because that's who's going to en masse have the educational opportunities and the time and the you know um, scholarship available to learn how to wield what is an incredibly unwieldy series of technologies like building of databases and understanding of data sets and deploying of AI models. Um, so I see kind of two paths spiraling outwards, right? Both based on the fact that AI is going to become more and more sophisticated. But what we've seen, fortunately, I suppose, in the last like 20 years of tech development is as the underlying like base technology becomes more and more like sophisticated and kind of unwieldy, the access to it becomes like it's easier to get in, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier to, you know, make a social media profile and link it to all these different, you know, sites. It's either easier to download apps, et cetera. Um, even as apps are becoming more and more like technologically impressive, you know, we have whole, you know, unreal engine games that you can play just on an iPhone. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious, both of your opinions, Colborn, maybe we could start with you. Like as these things become more sophisticated, will that make this like preservation of humanity more difficult? Or do you take, uh, like, do you think it's a pessimistic view where it's more sophisticated? So the barriers to entry get higher or does it naturally, because of the diversity of hopefully entities that are releasing some more and more sophisticated products, that it will just open up more pathways to more people to either gain this knowledge or be able to have some kind of like baseline understanding of how it works? It's it's such an interesting it's such an interesting question, and I think it really strikes at the heart of um, you know if it's not commercialized, is it valuable? Right. So if if <laughs> if it doesn't have, you know, if it is purely just cultural or if it is just an expression, is that going to be valuable and worth recording? Um, and I think perhaps, you know, maybe the decentralized storage protocol systems that we work with would say, yes, you know, everything is worth preserving. But, you know, the fact that runway ML kind of deprecated the ability for people to create their own things might suggest that it it isn't. And what is the price of experimentation? What does it mean to give more people access to no code tools to be able to experiment and see? So I want to believe that we're moving, that we will move beyond a world that is just hyper-commercialized and that, you know, human creativity will be valued and expression will be preserved. And these will find new meaning in a world of abundance that, and surplus that AI could bring forwards, although I think that remains to be seen and would require a tremendous shift in how things currently are. But it, it does feel somewhat commercially, uh, like a commercial necessity to engage with individual cultural nuance, because you're going to just make a product less appealing to more and more people. Um, you know, even if your aesthetic is highly Western, right? If it's if your aesthetic is based in New York, it's not going to appeal to people in Texas, right? And that's just within the United States itself. We're going to be able, like, people are not going to be able to find themselves reflected in these tools and thus it will become less interesting to them. And that just becomes more exaggerated the further we get from, you know, Silicon Valley. I, I'm, I wonder about that because, yeah, I really, I really do wonder about that because I feel like there's a lot of what my grandmother would call tasteless stuff that we have. <laughs> right she would just look at a lot of the stuff we have she'd be like this is ridiculous we had so much more in my time or in my time we respected music <laughs> things like that right um because the, the tools for making music became more democratic there were more people with i guess a low a different like threshold of talent than what would have made what would it would it have taken to cut it back then in the music industry um so i think I think we get used to mediocrity and we like continue to consume it. We, I don't think our taste evolves to adapt to it. And maybe there's a whole different bar for excellence, which looks nothing. It's like comparing apples and oranges, different generations, essentially what's good and what's not, what's beautiful and what's not. 
So, I mean, I mean, I think about my daughter. If she grows up watching animated shows that for the most part are created using, you know, AI-generated, you know, characters and, and language. Because I can sort of read something and say, that sounds like a chat GPT, <laughs> right? Or I can look at something and say, ah, that definitely looks like AI. But there's going to be an, a, so much of that when she's, you know, by the time she can read and watch stuff and understand them and, and sort of like, but, you know, if, if, by the time it starts to like imbue her psyche that she might not have such like that type of discernment because what was before almost becomes like this vintage, you know, like fringe niche thing. And the mainstream is that new normal. And that's what she's used to. And that's how, what informs her taste, at least like uh, subliminally. I think there's a, a contemporary analogy around how these the studios produce blockbuster movies now, and they're just, they screen test them to death, right? They get every single audience reaction for every single possible combination. And they try to find, you know, what is the most agreeable um, across like the biggest, broadest audience. And that seems to be the way of the world. And it, in my opinion, it trends toward mediocrity. It lacks the highs and lows that, that maybe art thrives on, that humanity thrives on, these these very deep feelings, and it tends to just placate and put everybody like, okay, yeah, like, that was good. I don't have anything really bad to say about it. And that, for me, is is really scary. Yeah. yeah. I saw this video recently of, uh, it was talking about Gen Z, or it was a video of a bunch of Gen Z kids on their first day of school this past year. And the sheer variety of outfits they were wearing um and it was just like an, an incredible understanding of fashion through the years and basically as long as i've been alive there's been a pull towards retro um fashion and i think that that is i have known very little about fashion so um but when i see around me right like these big bell-bottom pants are back right it's like there is this like almost subliminal yearning for cultural nuance for quirks for weirdness for like outside of the you know focus grouped to death like very homogenous kind of output <laughs> in the way that we express ourselves you know n normally right even just like the types of like hoodies that people wear there are the, the types of you go to a, 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 a any kind of concert right and the band shirts are like so weird and wacky and colorful and odd and like that displays itself in these subliminal ways and how we present ourselves to the world. Like, I wonder if slash when that worms its way into what we consume, mm. if it already has, I mean, you know, I love anime and as a kid, there was like a teenager. It wasn't exactly like publicizing that. Cause it was like kind of weird. Now it's like the cultural norm is like, of course, everyone watches anime. It's like so much more accepted. And of course, anime, especially when you compare it to like, current american animation the texture of the society that is creating it is there right the, the weirdness the oddities the just like this weird like fourth wall half breaking like it it's it's so present and of course there's an attractiveness to it i wonder if we see that like peter back into our collective cultural tastes uh no question attached to that just commentary <laughs> yeah i mean it's like if I'm thinking about is like if the it's like a consensus between the markets and governments and just in general how we structure our lives and how we build them is a consensus towards homogeneity it becomes very compelling to find something that makes you stick out as an individual because that pressure is so high to to just everything starts to look the same like like there's this um uh, there's this model of the world that sort of, instead of using a map, you can kind of um, essentially draw it based on income. And you have the core of the core, which is the richest of the rich. Everywhere they go, they live about the same life, regardless of, you know, the GDP of that country or the, mm. and then you have the the periphery of the core, which is who they let in lower income. Maybe they work for them service. Um and then you have the the core of the periphery and the, the periphery of the periphery, which is usually the most forgotten outer circle. 
um, you know, people you try to help by donating a dollar here and there. You have no idea the conditions they live in. You don't necessarily even see them as people because their lives are so far from what you kind of see, even in images, right? And I think if you think about it that way, because of that pressure to to have like this certain idea of life and to have that marketed to you and to have your governments work towards that with like a development agenda um, and to have other nations who are so-called developed look at, you know, so-called non-developed nations as like, come on, like the the way is here and and we've paved it for you and you have to follow it. Um, That kind of pressure, I think, if I was born, like, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, I would want to figure out a way to just kind of stand out. Like, you know, it seems like everything is dictated to me. You know, everything is just like pushing me in a certain direction. I'm supposed to like certain things. What existed before that I could draw from and and try to stand out as an individual. But I think that is symptomatic of what's happening at a systemic level, which is a crushing pressure to be the same. Mm-hmm. Like an averaging effect, like not just in AI, it's reflected in literally how government work. Um, so this is the the much more base example of that phenomenon in my life. But um, I I'm, I have like a, my guilty pleasure show is Love is Blind, which is this like Netflix. Yeah, you know, it's like a stupid reality show. And, you know, they're coming home and they're meeting, they're seeing how the other one lives for the first time, these couples who, like, met each other in these weird circumstances. And I, like, find myself being um, introduced to attitudes about, like, a reflection of my own lifestyle that I wouldn't have considered. Like, I'm 28. Do I live in a space that looks like it's a child's room? I, you can't see them. I'm going to try and move my computer <laughs> so you can see them. Like, so you see on the Let's wall on these, like, weird, these weird bugs. Yeah. So I got these from my grandma. They're these like they're these incredibly textured, like fabric covered giant bugs. And I'm like, what if I were to bring someone? I, that was where my mind went. I was like, what if I brought someone home from a reality show who was accustomed to a certain level of like lifestyle? And they walk in this room and they see these giant weird bugs hanging on my wall. Like they'd be out of there. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. And I've always thought it's wonderful. But again, to echo your it, echo your sentiment, it feels like all the mainstream anything is pushing me towards the norm, right? Pushing me towards going to home goods and getting a picture on the wall that just says like, live, laugh, love, right? Yeah. You know, wine o'clock, you know, baskets in my kitchen. Like it's these like really, really small, but also also very aggressive nuances of like homogenized society that I don't know. I feel like I'm being, even if I like dip a toe into this version of the world that I generally resist, I feel its influence in me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost as if you could just be like removed from your home at any point and it turned into an Airbnb. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I've been trying to move and every house I go to, it's the same tiles. It's the same colored walls. It's the same words that I use to describe them. Um, everything is the same. And I'm just like, can I just see an old like house? Is there something like that's decrepit that you have and now fix it up? I'm happy to. And I'm like, what? <laughs> no. Yeah. First of all, we make less commission on that. So we're definitely going to show, not going to show you that. So I resorted to kind of like drive around and look for to rent signs on like older buildings. Cause they usually won't be able to afford an agency. Um, and, and that way kind of visiting places that might, that I might move into. But yeah, it's, I mean, I mean, for, for me, I feel like it's always, you know, before AI, I felt that pressure. I was born and raised in Senegal. And for as long as I can remember, we were always trying to get somewhere that somehow we just never, we just like, we weren't cutting it. We weren't cutting it when my grandpa was, you know, a kid. Like, it's just been every generation that has gotten that message of like, you're not there yet. There's a long way to go. And I felt that pressure from very early on from school that, you know, there's there's this thing called progress and there's this thing called development. And when you're developed, this is how life looks. This is how buildings look. This is how, you know, you relax. This is how you spend your leisure time. This is how you work. These are the types of work that you should have. Um, 
and these are the types of things that you should want. Um, these are the kinds of music music you listen to. It's everything. It's literally everything. Like, it's not just the amount of money. It's how you spend that money. It's it's you know how you want to make that money. Right? Farming is not cool. You know, we've been farmers for like thousands of years. Who wants to be a farmer? We want to work in banks. You know, and so you have this like you have so many kids going to school for to become lawyers, bankers, doctors, um, and in general, just kind of like service industry, consulting, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then you have absolutely nobody who wants to farm. And um, we're wondering how we're going to make our food supply in the next 50 years, right? So like the pr the pressure exists, like, and I think it exists in places that are outside of the core of the core, right? Like, places where there's no option but to progress. There's no option but to become developed. And like that pressure is way stronger there um, because making it and getting like making it by these metrics means abandoning all that texture and that nuance and like yeah. accepting a whole different way of life. Even though we in the U.S. are as aware as anyone that like Western society is in decline, right? It's like you progress yeah. to this point and then you just want to get out. It's like how yeah. can we how can we stop the flow of development and prog quote unquote development quote unquote progress that like this place is on because nobody's happy with it so it's just yeah. like you get to this point and then you want to leave that point you're like oh okay I'm actually good yeah and it's it's a problem in both both places because you have in the U S everyone's looking for alternatives everyone is like trying to find like almost like like feeling in the dark for things in the past that can make you feel whole somehow mm. and there's not a lot there because we're also not very good at recording the past because we thought the past was shit so we just like there's no point like recording all this stuff we'll record the things that matter and then we'll decide even the way we decided that was completely arbitrary and then on the other hand you have these you have i guess us who've been told like this is the target but that's been no one has updated that information yet. No one's said like maybe the target is not that good. Maybe we should try something different. I mean, now because of the environmental pressure of progress, we're kind of getting a little bit of messaging around like, you know, we can't develop using fossil fuels. We have to figure out a different way to buy like a way to bypass industrialization, do it differently leapfrog some things um when when there's no blueprint we have to figure out the blueprint for ourselves but but the I, I think the problem is the same for everyone there's just no alternatives we've like erased so many of them like even from a biodiversity standpoint like the plants that my grandma used to use like oh chew this when you have a headache or take this when you bait it with like she had like a whole number of things she knew growing up that you could take to like for various ailments. Um, many of those are impossible to find now. Like they're just literally endangered or disappeared. Like nobody's scared to like grow them. They used to grow in the wild. The wild doesn't exist. People have built condos. <laughs> um, it's it's so it's 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 like a search for alternatives after we've done a really really good job at painting them as like, you know, not to be wanted and then did a really good job of not recording them. And so now we're all just feeling in the dark for, for what else we could be doing. Well, I mean, it's like, it's essentially what we've been talking about with AI, but we're just seeing the AI situation, no surprises here, play out in like with a hundred times rapidity of just the same like human cycles we've been going in. I know that we wanted to talk about speculative archives. Um, and I'd love for you to, I don't know if, do you want to like touch on speculative archives? Then we can have you back and we'll do like a whole conversation where we don't get derailed by, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> other wonderful conversations. Or what do you think? You mean I'm going to get to come back a third time? That's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, we, we have to uh, at this point. Um, speculative archives. So, so actually this is a really good segue because I was just talking about plants. And so... At some point, I realized that I was seeing far less flowers than my grandma used to see, and probably she saw far less than her grandma used to see. Obviously, a combination of David Attenborough, 
saying, you know, watching a lot of those documentaries and my grandma harping in my head like, oh, this, we don't have this anymore and we don't have that anymore. I became really curious about what existed, what was preserved. And so, so speculative archives, that idea, I think, I mean, it kind of, it's, feels like a meaningless term because archive means preserving what's preserving the past and speculative means like kind of, you know, imagining the future or futures. And so if you bring them together, what is that? It's AI basically. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, but essentially what I did was I went on um, sort of like the UN's most up-to-date list of endangered flora species in the Sahel region. So it's a very dry region. So we don't that have crazy biodiversity to begin with. Um, so it's a little bit easier. I think it would be much harder for different other areas of the world. But I narrowed it down to like about a hundred and hundred plus species that I would assume would be growing around the area where I grew up. And I tried to look for images of them online. I thought it was going to be a straightforward process. I'm just going to find these images, I'm going to dump them into a GAN, train a model and have like you know, all these cool animations. It didn't work out that way. I I think I found something like only a third of them existed as photographs online. The rest were just like, after some digging, the best I could hope for was somebody actually recorded the plant and like dried it and put it in a herbarium and it's somewhere in like some botanical garden um, archive. So there were some from the Pew Royal Botanical Gardens in the UK. There were some from the National Archives here locally. There were some from the Archives d'Outre-mer from France. So a lot of these archives are colonial archives, actually. Um, and some of them were lo local. And, you know, you have this page with just like a dry plant and what I guess would assume was the, the head of the flower. So you have no idea <clears throat> whether the flower was, you know, how it looked like you just can't see there's no photo right um so you have to take the annotation that the scientist or the botanist wrote in the page as prompt into ai to sort of imagine what it looked like it's a pretty neat use of ai i think um because you have the information and you have the capability to create an image from basically just words i mean you could you could argue that you could also commission an artist to actually read that information and, and try to come up with the with the description of the flower, but you could get it to a pretty heavy level of realism using AI. And you can create 5,000 different versions of that flower right. and then take some right. kind of like average of them. Yeah. And the information is pretty good. Like, you know, herbarium have like good descriptions of the actual flower, what happens, like what's the life cycle of the flower, what the color of the flower, the color of the leaves, waxy, not waxy. Like they have a lot of information that you can actually use as prompt. It makes the prompt really rich, um, better prompts than I would write myself. And so that's how I made the database. So there were real images, the photos of plants that I could still see around me, like, because I've been taking pictures of plants pictures of flowers and plants for like the, the past like six seven years um just randomly like people take photos of their food i take pictures of flowers even if they're like small and not very good looking i didn't know it was going to amount to anything but it, it it was used in this project so you have real photos taken by a person in their context then you have photos that you found online and then you have ai imaginated like approximation of of these flowers and then you train a model on these three states, one of one of which is reality, the other one, which is a perspective on reality, which is what you find on the internet, and the third one, which is a complete fabrication. So by nature, the work becomes speculative because it's not real. Like even if I have real images in there, it is just like I've also added some, you know, some some speculation, some imagination, and therefore it it's it is kind of becomes the nature of the project. But then what you can do once you train this model is to see you kind of act as a discriminating algorithm. What you end up seeing with that project, is it a flower? Can you answer that question? Usually when people look at that project that I did once upon a garden, it's not a flower. It's a suggestion of a flower. It's a spectral remain of what could have been a flower, but it is definitely not a flower. <laughs> so it kind of gives you a really good indication of how good you are at remembering something. Hmm. 
and like what else do you need to do to make that remembrance stronger like it's almost you can de determine to a degree like how much we've remembered something and and you know what we might want to preserve today in order to be able to remember it better in the future so it's archiving but it's speculative which was very simply how i brought those two words together I mean, that is just staggeringly fascinating. I have so many questions about like how that could be applied to all sorts of memory, like individual memory, historical memory. Um, I could have you here for another hour talking about that, but why don't we just have you back another time and we'll get <laughs> deep into it, okay? Mm -hmm. um, how many times have you had guests come three times? You would be the first and it Ooh! is looking that way. <laughs> Um, so Linda, this has been an awesome conversation. I really, really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, would you take a moment and tell our audience what they should know about you or where to find you or what you're working on? Uh, please. Yeah. Uh, find me on Twitter. That's usually the, where I put stuff. I'm really bad at Instagram, but if you like nice things, maybe you can look oh. at my Instagram too. Um, it's I Linda Dunya R D O U N I A R. Yes. On Twitter. That's the best place. Um, what am I working on right now? I'm still obsessing over flowers. I'm obsessing with, uh, over stairs. I can't even get into why that is. It's, it would take <laughs> 30 minutes. So I have a, a few projects um, just exploring some of these obsessions. And yeah, just catch up with me on Twitter and DM me. I like to DM with people. So I like to chat. All right. So next time it's more speculative archives and stairs. And we'll just let you go for 30 minutes on why you love stairs. Um, <laughs> for the same reason as the flowers, actually. Colborn, any last words before uh, we do our little outro here? Let's say goodbye. All right. Well, this has been another wonderful episode. Hopefully wonderful. I always do that. I just assume that the audience had a good time. This has been another episode, hopefully wonderful, of the Mocha Live podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a follow or five-star rating and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Please give us a follow on Substack at museumofcrypto.substack.com. Uh, my name is Max Cohen. That was Colborn Bell, our guest, Linda Dunya. This has been a lot of fun. I hope you all had a lot of fun, too. Getting pretty good at these outros. Uh, we will see <laughs> all of you again real soon. Thanks so much for being with us. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Linda Dunia for being our guest this week. Thank you to Coborn Bell for being my trusty co-host as always. Thanks to Julian Brangold for composing our intro music, to Day Fox for composing our cold open music, and most of all to everyone listening, we really appreciate you tuning in with us this week. We'll be back soon with another Mocha podcast. Until then, be well and take care.